94.7 Kumu Kokua, because Kumu cares. And on the line this morning for his Aloha Friday update, we have none other than Lieutenant Governor Josh Green. Woo! Good morning, sir. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Hey, let's get right to the vaccines because uh, we just actually just did the breaking news about mm-hmm. the Johnson & Johnson one-shot vaccine um, and how that might be a game changer for a lot of people. Can you talk about uh, that new vaccine and also kind of give us an update on where we are in Hawaii with vaccinations? Yes, absolutely. So uh, let me first do the overall. We're at 127,419 shots given as of yesterday. We did another 7,000. So we'll be somewhere around 134,000 shots given now out of the 203,600 that we have in stock. So that's about 65%. It's very good. It's better than any of our other comparable states out of the west side of the country. And so we've made a lot of progress in the last two to three weeks. Mm. Good. We are deep into the 1D category, mostly doing kupuna right now, but some essential workers that are our frontline workers. So that's happening right now. And then this Johnson & Johnson news, because we've had just the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines, which are excellent. They do, uh, over the course of two shots, they give you 94.5 or better percent protection. Mm-hmm. The Johnson & Johnson starts coming out, and it's different. It only uh, is one shot, so that's good news. You only have to take one shot, and you're done with it. But the downside is it's a little less effective. It's at 65% effective to prevent any infection. But on the good side of that coin is that it's almost 100% effective to prevent severe hospitalization-type illness. Mm. So it's going to probably have a place in this whole uh, vaccination strategy, mostly in my opinion now, and I wait to see what the CDC and and Dr. Fauci and others say. I think it's likely going to be very useful for people who are generally healthy and on the younger side. Like people say up to age 50 who have very low risk of, of, of severe illness, this will give you a lot of extra immunity. Younger people, people in their 20s and 30s, we found through, through surveys, are reluctant to get the vaccine at all. And this would be a godsend. You know, if we can get, say, up to 70 percent of the people vaccinated, it will get us herd immunity. But what if we're hovering at 60 percent and we need just to get over that threshold? Mm-hmm. Well, then the Johnson vaccine could be very helpful. So. I'm overall, you know, super enthusiastic of more options. Right now, we're getting between about 35,000 and heck, 40,000 doses in pretty routinely. We're told that the federal government is going to increase our, our capacity by at least 16%, and we have more than enough capacity to give the shot. That's not the problem. So here it is. You know, we want people to, uh, we want people to get the shot. We want people to get immune. We want the whole state to consider doing this because we're in a better spot than anyone else. We're Mm -hmm. seeing a low number of COVID cases overall and a rapidly accelerating number of people getting vaccinated. So you put all these things together and I think we can get to a million shots uh, delivered uh, by summer, by probably June 1st at this rate. So I'm enthusiastic about it, but people have to commit to it. You know, they're going to have to think hard and, and make sure that it's okay, you know, for them uh, kind of psychologically. As a follow-up to that, I just wanted to ask you, because we have reported on that poll showing, you know, uh, as far as Hawaii's population is concerned, half say they will get the vaccine, one-fourth undecided, one-fourth saying they're not going to get it at all. At least that's how they felt. What does the yep. state plan to do uh, to convince that other, basically one-half of the population who are basically either undecided or decided against getting a vaccine? Sure. So there's a couple ways that this works. So, for example, they have me on a tour right now talking to healthcare facilities all over the place and large groups. 
500 people by 500, by 200, by 400, by 1,000, telling people what I believe, which is, you know, I had both experienced COVID and I've been vaccinated as a physician, and it was fine. And it, it is actually, it feels like a blessing when you've been vaccinated and you are not likely to catch it or spread it to your family. I can just tell you that's what I experienced. So I share a lot in big numbers. And then there's, of course, a huge public campaign where there's public service announcements and commercials and this and that. That always helps some, but usually it's word of mouth. You know, usually it's now that we've had, like I said, 127,000 as of yesterday vaccinated, those individuals are telling their story to the other, you know, million people in our state that might consider it or are planning to do it. They're expressing it to their families. They're talking over the dinner table about what the experience was. We've really not had any severe side effects of consequence. They're, t- they're sharing their stories, and that's usually how we do it in Hawaii. So what I expect is the first half of the population is going to be pretty seamlessly vaccinated, the 50%, right? Mm-hmm. Then the next quarter is going to decide based on, well, was it a big deal or not? And then finally, there is a big, there is a big wild card here, and I'm, I'm not saying that one is contingent on the other, but I have proposed now to the governor and to the mayors for their consideration. I've proposed essentially a roadmap to have the following happen. When we get through the 1B, the majority of the 1B people to be vaccinated, we can open up inter-island travel without any pretest for those who have gotten both their shots plus two weeks, meaning they're immune. That means you can travel freely. You can still travel freely, but otherwise you're going to still have to get the pretest, which is a nuisance, right? Getting mm-hmm. the pretest um, within 72 hours can be difficult. So there are benefits because you are immune. You're safer for travel purposes. And then when we finish the majority of the 1C category, we open up travel from the mainland. So that by that point, this tracks with safety, right? This is the rationale. At that point, most of our people who could have been vulnerable, all of our kupuna, everyone 65 and older and 75 and older, and people with chronic disease and healthcare workers and frontline essential workers, when all those people have been offered the vaccine and most have gotten it, that's the time when we can safely say, if you've been vaccinated on the mainland, you demonstrate it with our safe travels program. You can also come here without needing to quarantine. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is a strategic plan based on science, based on safety, based, based on the health of the people we love and how protected they are, that we can begin to open up in a bigger way. And instead of having eight to 10,000 people come in, which is not in any way going to sustain our, our, our society, we can get back to a better number. Not the numbers we used to have, which drove everybody crazy, but maybe get up to 20,000 travelers again, but all of them having been vaccinated, you'll still be able to get the pretest instead if you're against vaccinations. All of those people are safe. And that's, a, I hope, a good analytical way to do it. And then I will say this, I've even added one other um, provision, a, a final recommendation, and mm-hmm. that's when all the people in our state of 1A, 1B, and 1C have completed the vaccine, all that are willing to take it, that that's when we can open up to large events again. And I think that would happen close to May 1st. So, if people want to come have weddings, if we want to have concerts again, if people have been vaccinated, it's safe. And so this is the way people always are asking me constantly, when do we get back to normal? Well, it's going to take a while to get you know, our brains back to normal because this was very traumatic for, for people to be staying at home and tra- very traumatic if anyone knows someone who had COVID badly. Mm-hmm. But to get back kind of to normal, we have to be safe. And the way to get safe is to be vaccinated and then, honestly, I'll still I'll still um, uh, recommend that people wear masks around others most of the time because 
we want to really end this thing. But imagine the time when most people have been vaccinated and you know the travelers coming here are vaccinated. Then I think it's pretty safe to say that we should, you know, we should feel comfortable mm-hmm. that we're on our way uh, to recovery. Uh, Lieutenant Governor, my parents and my in-laws just got the first round of shots uh, for yep. their vaccination. Uh, and now I'm seeing a bunch of stuff online about people suffering from bad reactions to the second shot. Mm-hmm. Um, my dad is immunocompromised. He's 77 years old. So uh, some people are saying, well, maybe he doesn't need to take that second shot. And I'm like, well, then he goes from 50% covered to, you know, mm-hmm. from 90% covered with the second shot to only 50%. So yeah. do, do you have recommendations for people with regards to that? If I may piggyback on that, I actually have a friend who is younger than I, got her second shot recently and ended up on the second. She was fine on the first shot. Yeah. Her second shot, she ended up in the ER for three hours because yeah. she was having a bad reaction. Um, and nothing in her history had indicated that she would. So, Lieutenant Governor, I, I guess Devin is asking, what, what do you recommend there? Uh, I recommend we look at the big picture, which is extraordinarily few people have had severe side effects. At one point, the count was 21 out of 1.89 million. So the person that you described that landed in the ER is is in that very, very small group. Mm -hmm. Um, And it can happen. Of course it can happen. Usually it happens for other reasons, for pain or feeling dizzy afterwards as as a result of getting a shot. Now, sometimes there are allergic reactions. There's no question. But we have not had any fatalities to report. That's extraordinary. We have not had any of the severe complications that some vaccines over the decades have given, like Guillain-Barre syndrome, which is a, a, a serious uh, response to uh, often a virus or sometimes a vaccine. We haven't had any of that. And so, yes, there's a little bit more side effect from the second shot when your body's revving up its immune system. But I would say this, you know, um, so, Devin, your dad's 77, my dad's 77. Uh, I'm, I'm dying for him to get vaccinated. Mm. In fact, he got his shot in Seattle. Because I know that COVID will um, have a high risk of killing him. Mm-hmm. And though my dad drives me crazy, I don't want him to be killed yep, by a virus. Yep. It would break our heart, right? So, you know, I really strongly recommend people, recommend to people to get both shots, even though I will admit I, I had no reaction to the first shot except for a sore arm for a couple of hours. And the second shot I had four hours, so I felt just a little achy. Mm. And I took Tylenol and it went away. I mean... I've had worse responses from from whiskey, you know, and so I will tell you, it's a uh, overall, it's a good thing to do. It's it's important, uh, though. One shot's better than none, but for for older people, for our kupuna, it really is important they get both shots. And if we have to monitor them a little longer, we do at the centers. If people are worried, there's no reason they can't stay for thirty minutes, and and just if they want to be extra cautious. But again, it's really rare, and so. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it'll take a lot of stories. One of the risks is the um, the scary stories always pop more for us, right? They they are they raise our our level of alert, and that's that's human nature. But if I could if I could share with you the you know the two thousand people that rolled through Hawaii Pacific Health and had no problems at all in a day, I mean it's just incredible. And same things going for Queens. Sure, there's going to be an occasional problem, but I'll tell you, a lot more people are going to have a problem with like um, their gout in the next couple of days across Hawaii <laughs> than they are with a shot. Mm-hmm. I mean, name a million different health conditions that are going to cause us more harm than the vaccine is going to. So keep that in mind and we'll keep looking at the data. If there are any, the reason we do these studies, you know, really comprehensive studies on these vaccines is because we want to know. And some of them, I think it was the Merck uh, vaccine. It just didn't, 
it just didn't pan out, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm sure people had some side effects in like the phase one and phase two parts of the trials and they just dumped it. So the ones that make it to the finish line are the safest and most effective. And that's so far Pfizer, Moderna, and now soon Johnson and Johnson. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're talking with Lieutenant Governor Josh Green. Sir, I wanted to ask you about the use of pain relievers before taking vaccines. So basically people, some people were you know, trying to anticipate, uh, they were worried about feeling discomfort from getting the vaccine. So they've been taking Tylenol or ibuprofen. And, um, but now those organizations have been saying they are recommending against the use of pain relievers before getting the vaccine, although they're cool with taking it after. Can you explain what that's yeah. about? Yeah, the um, taking, taking anti-inflammatories like ibuprofen or antipyretics, which means fever medicines that also help with pain like Tylenol, what those things are doing is they're suppressing the inflammatory response. And in general, they're suppressing your body's immune response slightly because the feelings that people are getting, the aches and such afterwards, is the immune system revving up and releasing some chemicals that cause you to feel that way. What they're saying is they don't want you to artificially suppress that response before you get the shot. They don't know that it's going to actually decrease the, the, um, the effectiveness of the vaccine, but they're wary. They want those chemicals coursing through us because those, those natural chemicals that our bodies are responding with, because that is the immune response getting um, set up. Mm. I, t- I tend to advise for ty- people to use Tylenol, this is me being the doctor, as opposed to anti-inflammatories or steroids or anything like that, is because Tylenol is pretty benign. I mean, Tylenol really is focusing on certain of the um, biochemical pathways that just suppress fever. And suppressing fever is really no big deal. I mean, any of us who have had kids are just, you know, they, we, we give our kids a lot of Tylenol because we can barely take it when they have a fever, when they're crying, when they're upset. <laughs> mm-hmm. But they feel terrible when we are tortured by them because they feel terrible. So that's real common. Um, so long way of saying as a dad and a doc, I think you use Tylenol afterwards for, for minor symptoms and if the CDC wants to be a little bit more prickly about stuff in advance, I get it. Okay. Thank All you right. very much. Lieutenant Governor Josh Green joining us here. And uh, we're going to go to some of the questions we got on our uh, Facebook page uh, from Liz Hugh. Where are teachers getting vaccinated? Any prediction on how long before 1Bs are done with the first vaccinations? I do have information about that. So teachers' pods are being set up all across the state. The schools themselves are going to be reaching out to their teachers. The the advanced vaccination of the 1B teachers has been pared down from about 13,000 people in, in the education realm to about 6,500 who are the most uh, vulnerable, who are with kids that are vulnerable, who are also with kids that need nursing support, and of course in the classrooms. And so it appears to me, based on what I've seen, that about half of them are going to be accelerated. And I think that they're coming right after our kupuna, our kind of, our, our kupuna, our pal. So that's, that's imminent. And I expect that the DOE and, and each of the principals are going to be pushing out that information. So uh, be right. If you're a teacher or an educator, you should make sure that you're in, like, in direct communication with your administrators at your facilities. They will probably have the dates. I actually saw a list of dates coming up in February where a lot of educators are going to be getting vaccinated. And why is that important? Because you get the first shot in early February, get the second shot late February. And the, the vaccination of our educators means that our kids can go back to school without as much risk. And then we can have education back in the classroom much more systematically. I actually put out a memo to the governor and the mayors yesterday and, and the rest of the leadership 
asking for their consideration of the following, that we go through the 1B category, we get the majority of that done, which includes teachers, and then we can decrease our restrictions, decrease restrictions on inter-island travel, decrease restrictions, go back into the classroom, and open up that way. And then when we get through with 1C, or the majority of 1C, that's people with chronic disease, 65 to 74, and so on, that's when we have travel from the mainland come, provided mm-hmm. people are vaccinated. So you get your vaccines plus two weeks, so you get your full immunity, then you're in the clear. And this is a plan meant to track uh, safety and protection for our most vulnerable people and people who are doing a lot of front-facing work to other infectious individuals like kids and, in turn, open up safely. So I'm trying to be very analytical about it. I'm sure that they will need to take my proposal and tweak it and bet it and stuff, but that's the general principle, that we will be shielded from significant spread and illness as we get vaccinated. Therefore, we start opening and restore kind of normalcy. Uh, The reason I'm pushing this now is because I've become increasingly worried about the long-term effects of COVID on society. I'm increasingly worried that isolation is going to be, over time, hard to reverse, that people are losing touch with what was most important. Mm -hmm. It's having a psychological impact on a lot of people that they've been trapped in their house and unable to do what they're accustomed to doing for their families. So we got to get over that and push through. And now that we're vaccinating people pretty rigorously, I wanted some um, I wanted to give some opportunity for the rest of our leadership to make those judgment calls. Mm. We're talking with Lieutenant Governor Josh Green. Another one of our listeners has a question. Laurie Ann is asking, what's the status on finding out if vaccinated people can still spread the virus? And I guess she is also asking about, like, you know, if you're vaccinated, do you still have to wear a mask? Do you still have to social distance? Um, Those kinds of things. Do you have some thoughts on that? I have many thoughts on that. Yes. So I'm in constant communication with the CDC and leadership. And I even saw Dr. Fauci make some comments about this. What she's referring to is the concept of sterilization immunity. So it's called sterilization immunity. And mm-hmm. what it means is if you had your shot, both of them, are your upper airways sterile from the virus? And the early data suggests that that will be the case, that the viral load or the amount of virus will be way, way lower. And it will be sufficiently low risk so that we can start making some of these policy calls like allowing people to travel if they've had their shots and gotten fully immune and not have to worry about things. Now, people should still wear a mask, in my opinion, for a lot of reasons. One, you can't tell whether people are vaccinated or not, and we're not going to be stopping people and asking them to show their card or anything. It's not fair. It's a little bit, that's too police state-ish for my taste, okay? Mm -hmm. But we still want to get through to the point where we have herd immunity, which is going to take probably until Labor Day. Could happen, could start happening as early as July 4th, possibly, but we've got to get to about... 800,000 or so, maybe more people vaccinated before that happens. So wearing a mask makes a lot of sense. And remember, some people, well, look at the percentages. 5% of people who get Pfizer's shot, uh, 5.5% of the Moderna folks, and maybe as many as 30% of the Johnson & Johnson people who get vaccinated may still have the potential for catching it. And so we will want those guys to have masks on until society has really knocked this thing out. Until I'm reporting case counts back like, you know, in the, the 30 and lower uh, mm-hmm. rate where it's really low for a population of 1.4 million people, we should definitely be wearing masks. And I expect people will understand that. Right now, we've been hovering around 90% adherence to mask wearing in public spaces, which is really great. And that's why we've plateaued. But if people want me to start flipping that whiteboard and showing just double digits consistently, 
we're going to have to even, you know, we're going to have to renew our efforts to get masks all the time and see the effect of vaccinations in the population. Okay. Thank you very much. Lieutenant Governor, I wanted to focus on that mask statement that you just said, because we're also seeing reports about um, Dr. Fauci recommending you wear two masks now. And it was pretty hard to get people to wear one mask. <laughs> so uh, how do you recommend us approaching people with two masks? Uh, look, two masks, it seems like a little bit more than we could possibly ask people to uh, to really commit to. It's hard enough to get one mask. And remember, we start to unfortunately um, discourage people from from participating and adhering to their recommendations when you go overboard. I can tell you there's no way on earth you're going to convince people who already are pissed off about wearing one mask to suddenly wear two masks. So it's not it's not likely practical or mm-hmm. realistic. I think that you, you know, the message is you should be as protected as possible. And, you know, no one loves Fauci more than me. But he gets put to these questions, and I'm sure he would tell you, just if we have good, solid one mask wearing uh, policies all across the country, you'll see the, the rates of transmission drop really steeply, which has been the case here. So let's stick with one as our guide. But when you're out and about, one mask is sufficient. And a good mask, you know, you don't want a mask that's hanging off your face. You don't want a mask that's beaten up so badly that it's not catching everything. But renew your mask, make sure it's solid. And each month we're going to be that much closer. Like each month we're going to get essentially 100,000 people vaccinated completely as we go forward, maybe more. And so that's that much less risk per month. And that's going to coincide with good mask wearing and you know, still socially distancing. So we're, we're, getting, we're getting the first glimpse at the end of this um, long, long tunnel. And there is light at the end of the tunnel. It's more evident than ever now that by summer we're going to be in a good spot. Mm-hmm. Lieutenant Governor, I just wanted to clarify something. When you say single masks are sufficient and you're... I just want to clarify, you are talking about like general public policy, but in practice for an individual who is cool with wearing masks, like for me and for Devin, when we're used to wearing masks, we wear them all the time. A lot of our friends do as well in our family. Um, wearing a double mask, um, you know, some of the, the studies show that they are indeed 50 to 60 percent more effective in blocking aerosols. So for people who are cool with wearing masks, it doesn't hurt, right? Like you could, it does at least block out more of the things that you could inhale or exhale. Right. And you could say the same thing about wearing a mask is twice as effective. Like a lot of people wear very thin cloth masks. And obviously if they were wearing an, an N95 mask, which is way more effective, mm-hmm. they would be often less likely to spread. I mean, someone could wear eight masks if they can breathe through it. And I guarantee you nothing <laughs> will come out, but mm-hmm. nor will any oxygen get in probably and they're going to probably die of, of asphyxiation so you know as long as people are wearing enough cover to prevent droplets from flying you're going to see a very significant decrease in the spread of covid influenza and so on okay. uh, common cold mm-hmm. uh, yes that double mask or a mask that's really got a, a higher rate of protection is fantastic um, i just think that changing policy so often is confusing to people it's, it's not really worth it. You know, I'm not Dr. Fauci, but I can tell you from a, a reality standpoint, if we can get people wearing one mask solidly and if we can continue to avoid large gatherings, we've won. All right. Okay. Um, Lieutenant Governor, real quick, uh, one more question we got off of Facebook from Heidi Pasco. She's asking your opinion on House Bill 1286, uh, which is allowing people to arrive in Hawaii without test results and then testing upon arrival. Uh, and it's 
I mean, it was introduced by the Speaker of the House, uh, Speaker Psyche. So just curious what you think of that bill, if you had a chance to look at it at all. At it. Yeah, we should not encourage people to arrive without a test. That is a tremendous mistake uh, to encourage that. Now, do I think we should allow people to test out under certain circumstances if they're going to stay in quarantine? Not the worst thing. It's, it's good. It's something that I've proposed on numerous occasions. Uh, but encouraging people to travel here without a test is dangerous. It also is not realistic because we don't have, like right, right now, today, we got 10,000 people that flew in, right? Mm-hmm. What if those 10,000 people flew in without a test and you tell them they can test out? We only have 5,000 tests at max. And that includes the three or 4,000 people that need it for healthcare reasons here every day in the state. What are you going to do? You're now going to have 10,000 people, if they've caught on that they don't have to get the pretest, they can just fly. You're going to have them waiting for test results. You will zero out our testing capacity. And finally, you will have allowed people to travel the full route, which is often 12 or 14 hours, uh, to Hawaii, not knowing whether or not they're positive. And if they test positive here on this end, then they have to go into quarantine, which is difficult to enforce. Mm -hmm. So by far the better policy is to have the majority of people test beforehand and only the stragglers testing out when there's been a confusion, when their test was wrong accidentally, when their test result was ambiguous. I mean, we don't want to victimize people who have in good faith tried to get tested. We'd be better off to at least offer some more flexibility on the front end to have people tested out. But I will tell you the better policy by far is to have people come if they've been fully vaccinated and become Mm -hmm. immune. That is the guarantee. We know what the guarantee is. It's 95% if they got two Pfizer shots, 94.5% if they got the Moderna shot, and 65% if they get the shot um, from from Johnson & Johnson. And more than that, we still are going to ask them to wear masks, and the probability that they caught the virus since being vaccinated is utterly small. So there's, there's great policy ideas that can be put out there, and some of them have come from Speaker, but this idea, which if it, if it replaced the overall approach, which is getting a pretest beforehand, which people will look at it that way and they'll think, oh, no problem. I don't have to worry about that three-day window. I'm just going to get tested when I hit Hawaii. Mm-hmm. We're going to have a mass problem. So if that's the plan, then I hope that there also is an appropriation associated with it, which, re- you know, which sets up an easy set of testing for anybody that arrives and a sets up a quarantine site where they stay that we can actually enforce. And it takes into account the many people that are going to arrive and be stuck here for 10 days in full isolation when they show up positive. So um, there's been a lot of thought put into the Safe Travels program, and there are a lot of um, people who want to judge it. But sometimes I wonder why people want to fix something that's not really broken. (laughs) We have been able, we're the only state in the country Mm -hmm. that's had deep case rates and, and, and sustained actually some travel as compared to everybody else. So blowing it up seems like, um, I don't know. It, it's, I'm, I'm always open to improvements, but I'd be very wary of trying to replace a program that's already worked. And ha- now we're in the end game. Now we're actually focusing on vaccinating people and using that as our barometer to uh, be safely opened. So maybe that thing's already past prime, but you know, if you can test more people here, it's always good. We should focus on the most important stuff that actually helps, and and that's what I'll keep doing. 
Thank okay. you, Lieutenant Governor Josh Green. Wanted to ask you uh, quickly because everybody's getting ready for Super Bowl now. 25% of people are saying they are still going to have gatherings for the Super Bowl. So I wanted to ask you if you wanted to say something about that and also asking you who you're rooting for. <laughs> <laughs> I would just say this. If you're going to have a gathering, it still should be small. It should still be mask wearing. I mean, notwithstanding the need to eat Tostitos chips and that cheese, (laughs) be careful because we don't need a super spreader event for two lame football teams like the Patriots and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Uh, I'm sorry. The Chiefs. The Chiefs. I have have post-traumatic Tom Brady syndrome. (laughs) He's been traumatized. Got it. (laughs) But look, it, if it was the Steeler game, I could say maybe we need to have gatherings. But because it's Tampa Bay, it is definitely not worth having Super Bowl parties and spreading folks. Oh, wow. Ouch. <laughs> Brutal. Sir, thank you so much. My pleasure. See you next week. And thank you, everyone, for being safe out there.